now is we're under a weight of something that we shouldn't be carrying because uh, we've chosen to to go the extra mile when you said don't go the extra mile we've chosen to do something that lord god you've told us to wait and we're we're moving forward with it and and now this is our chance to let some of those things go to just uh, release some things in front of god and to bless his name and to 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 just permission yourself to not carry what it is that you've brought in here so in jesus's name I release you from those things to have the freedom to receive from God and God's word and God's people this morning. I bless you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being powerful over all of our situations this morning. And so we give attention to you. We give attention to your word. And we thank you that you're with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Newcom. My name is uh, Daniel Yang. I am a friend of Pastor Peter's, and I'm so glad to be with you guys. This feels like home for me, to be honest with you guys. Every time I'm here, and I was here this past summer, I had a chance to uh, preach for Pastor Peter and preach for you guys, and so thank you for having me back. I guess something went right to, to be able to have me come back uh, this week, but it's also a chance for uh, Pastor Peter to rest some and enjoy his family as uh, they were in town this week, so thank you so much for having me. And for those of you guys who are, are new to Newcom, uh, boy, I've really enjoyed being here, so hopefully you find this time encouraging as well. If I suck as a preacher this morning, uh, Pastor Peter will be back next week, so you don't have to worry about that, but uh, really excited for those of you guys who are taking next steps in church community because I, I, I was a pastor for a while as well, and I know how difficult it is sometimes for people to get acclimated into a church, especially if you're new to the city. So for those of you guys who are new here, I just want to encourage you. This has been great for our family to be here uh, as visitors, and so I hope you find it to, to be the same as well. Uh, today we're going to look at a passage uh, in the book of Joel, verse, uh, chapter 22, uh, verses 24 on. And so I'm entitling this message today, uh, We Are the Years That the Locusts Have Eaten. We are the years that the locusts have eaten. And I'm going to read this passage uh, and then share a little bit of my story. And so last time I was here in July, I had a chance to share a little bit about our, our ministry. But today I want to share a little bit more about our personal history, my family's history. And I want to use this passage here to kind of lead that time. Uh, but also I want to talk about some things that God has planned, not just for my family, but for uh, his church family as well. We're only at Joel chapter uh, 2, two, starting with verse 24. And this is what the prophet Joel writes. He says, The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. As some of you might be familiar with the 
uh, verses, especially the ones that says God is restoring to his people the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. As a matter of fact, for those of you who grew up in church, you might have even claimed this promise in your own life. In its original context, though, the promise is given on the cusp of several years of invasion and national tragedies. So Israel had endured several Pearl Harbor moments. They had endured several uh, JFK assassinations, several 9-11 moments, several clown presidents, I mean king moments, and all of these were strung together one after another. And if you study these moments carefully, you'll realize that there were some profound moments of pain and loss in the history of a nation. Lost years, lost relationship, lost hope, lost identity, lost leadership, tremendous confusion. And during these years, Israel was being redefined as a nation and had to come to grips with the question, do I like what I've become? As much as we hate tragedy and loss, nothing forces us to the point where we ask ourselves, do I like what I have become? Tragedy makes us real with ourselves. Uh, But in the midst of loss and confusion, before the story is being done written, before all the sins are even done being committed, before there's full repentance, there is a story here that promises a better future. The idea of God restoring the years that the locusts have eaten is a metaphor for a theological reality that says, regardless of your personal and corporate responsibility for suffering, for suffering, whether it was your responsibility, our responsibility, whose responsibility it was, doesn't matter. None of that is meaningless. None of it is irredeemable by God. For thousands, uh, thousands of years, there's been a hope that kind of cuts through the philosophical narrative of all of, all of history. There's a, there's a hope of thread. There's a thread of hope that cuts through all of this. And this hope says that no matter how wicked humanity gets, God's goodness not only overrides suffering, but God's goodness transforms suffering. God turns profound loss into profound blessing. You see, Stoic philosophy says that there's logic behind suffering. Eastern religion says that suffering is the pathway to your salvation. Secular humanism and materialism says that suffering is just chemicals in our bodies. But only in the narratives of the Bible does it say that when your suffering and loss is humanly impossible to, to, to explain and to bear, when it's impossible to make sense of it all, It's because God is transforming your suffering into glory. The degree of pain indicates the degree of glory. And it's impossible to discover the meaning of this magnitude of suffering in just one generation. That's the point of the Bible. It takes multiple generations to process these events in the lives of a person, in the lives of a nation. It takes multiple generations to come to the end of that suffering to begin to understand, oh, okay, I think I know what's going on now. So I think, I, I think we have it up here. But uh, this is the big point that I, I like to give my sermons away at the big, very beginning so you know where I'm going, okay? I've got a bottom line and i got three points. So it'll be real easy for us today. And here's the bottom line for today. That there is pain that others in the past have endured that set you up to accomplish more of God's purposes. Which, mean, which means there's pain in your life that you're enduring today that tomorrow will set up others to accomplish their purposes. Let this pain inspire you. Don't let it distract you. 
For, for the last seven years, I've been working through this theological journey. I'm going to share a little bit about my life story, but it's a theological concept that I've been trying to live out. And I've been asking myself, what would it mean for me to, be, to live out as if I am a part of the restoration of the years that the locusts have eaten? Instead of claiming that promise for myself, what if I was a part of the restoration of the years that the locusts have eaten? What if I'm one degree of the transformation towards glory that first started out as pain and suffering? What if I am an answered promise and an answered prayer? So personally, I'm on a theological journey uh, to understand myself and the missional purpose of refugee immigrants, communities that have come from war-torn countries to America. Mine came 40 years ago. I'll share a little bit more about that. And they were seeking political asylum, but instead they discover God's eternal purposes. So that's the journey that I'm on. That's the journey that I want to share a little bit with you guys today. By the way, my family's over here. Uh, my wife, Linda, and my four boys, they're uh, second, third generation Americans. And uh, I, I told them they were going to uh, hang out with some friends today. I said, hey, you, I want you to come here because I'm going to share more about our story and a little bit of our heritage. Uh, you see, my family, we came to the U.S. in 1979. Uh, uh, we survived a war that was later called the Secret War in Laos. It was simultaneously being fought alongside the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War was televised and publicized. The war in Laos was not. Uh, and uh, to this day, Laos is the most bombed and shelled country in the history of humanity. Uh, my dad and other Hmong men, uh, I'm Hmong uh, ethnically, uh, some as young as 12 and 13 were recruited by the CIA in the Lao Royal Army as guerrilla fighters to cut off the Ho Chi Minh Trail that came from North Vietnam into Laos. And they were also hired uh, by the CIA to rescue downed American pilots. They were U.S. allies. My dad, my uncles, my relatives were U.S. allies in this war. But when the Americans pulled out of Vietnam in Laos, uh, in 1975, that left the Hmong people stranded, and we were targets for ethnic cleansing. And so many of the Hmong fled Laos into Thailand. Conservative estimates say that during the time of the war, 50,000 Hmong people died because of combat, because of the war. There were only 300,000 Hmong people in Laos. And so this is the tragedy that uh, my dad experienced. It's been 40 years since the war in our immigration to America. A lot of us have lived the American dream. I, I, I have. Uh, I am. Uh, but 40 years is not long enough to process the amount of trauma that a people like this experiences. It's, it's one generation is not enough to, long enough to find meaning for all of this trauma. Let me share some stories. My oldest sister, uh, she was born in the midst of war. She can remember traveling for days in the jungles of Laos, fleeing communist gunfire, begging my dad to stop to find food. And one story she tells, it's, 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 it's pretty comedic, but sad at the same time. She remembers being on my dad's back, and he's carrying them, and they were fleeing the communists. She was so hungry. So she saw this turtle just crawling on the ground. And so she says to my dad, uh, hey, dad, are turtles edible? My dad had never eaten a turtle, but they did that night. <laughs> uh, there are three times that my dad was reported dead, believed to be dead. Uh, you can imagine how my mom felt each time he was being deployed. 
Uh, my dad's oldest sister, Shua, she had 14 children. Between sickness, avoiding capture, and things parents shouldn't have to do to crying children in the middle of the night, only two survived. My dad's older brother, while fleeing with the family, heard a click underneath his foot. He told my dad to keep the family moving ahead. My dad knew it was a landmine. After a short argument and tearful instructions by my uncle to my dad to take care of his four-year-old son, my dad agreed to lead the family forward, and after they made some distance, they heard a quiet explosion. My family stopped long enough for my dad to return to the spot to bury his brother's remains. Suffering like this can't be made sense of in just one generation. Forty years isn't long enough to process the question, why, why God? Why would you let this happen to, to us? In the midst of profound loss and profound pain, it still feels too early and too, too simple to begin to say, but there's blessing in the midst of suffering. You can try. And as someone who's trying, admittedly, it sometimes feels like we're pretending that there's blessing. But that's because the pain is very real. About seven years ago, uh, that blessing that felt like pretending started to feel a little bit more like reality. I was invited to travel to North Vietnam in 2010. I was nervous about going to North Vietnam. I didn't know what my dad would think because my people think that Northern Vietnam was the head of the snake, okay? Um, so I was going to attend a special education conference held by the Vietnamese government and by Ho Chi Minh University. I also wanted to visit the church that was exploding in the northern uh, mountains of Vietnam uh, that happened in the, in the mid-90s. I didn't want to go in spite of my dad's past experience. I didn't want to dishonor him. I didn't want to hurt him by serving a government that once used to be his enemy. And so I called up my dad and I said, Dad, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I was invited to attend this conference and to help serve. And so uh, what do you think? Um, I, I don't want to dishonor you. I don't want to disrespect you. How do you feel about me going to northern Vietnam to serve uh, this country? And he said to me, he spoke this in Hmong. I'm translating this to English, okay? His English isn't this good, but uh, he, I, I remember these words uh, in Hmong. He says, you should go ahead and go. All that's in the past. God taught us to love our enemies. Everything has changed. God brought us to the U.S. for a reason, so we can help those who are even less fortunate than ourselves. And at that moment, I understood something uh, very profound. That Jesus makes a difference in how you understand your past. Uh, my dad was the first in the entire history of our family lineage. At the age of 40, he became a Christian back in 1980. And it began a journey for him to process his past through the filter of Jesus and the cross. And in that, for him, he was able to release and give me permission to serve a country that he used to call enemy, that used to shoot at him. And not only that, but he was able to say, and you can go back and bless them. Uh, it made me realize something profound about what we conveniently call Christianity, that's this, that Jesus redeems how you understand the past. Jesus is the years that the locusts have eaten. Jesus is the restoration of everything that was lost, history, personal, family, corporate, nationally. Jesus becomes that. And this is what the passage that we're looking at opens up with. It says this, the threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. 
In this passage, God's promising Israel that the latter days will be better than the former days. That although what's in front of them seems like famine and loss, the fields will soon be filled with grain, the vats will soon be filled with wine and oil. It hints at the reward that Job received for his intense suffering. It hints at the story of Israel entering into the promised land after wandering for 40 years. And it points to a banquet that broke a broken and wayward son celebrates with an anxiously waiting father. Uh, there's a phrase here that trips me up. Uh, and I don't know if you, you caught this phrase here, but it says, uh, my great army, my great, God's great army, which I sent you. It's hard theologically for me to kind of think and reconcile this because in a sense what God is saying is uh, I take responsibility. Uh, God sends the suffering. Uh, I don't want us to mishear that. It's important for us to hear it the right way. Uh, more precisely, God is saying I take responsibility over the suffering. Uh, God is taking responsibility over suffering. It's, it's not the same way that ISIS claims responsibility for uh, killing 305 people in Egypt. That's, that's not what God is doing here. He's taking over responsibility for suffering. In order for God to transform suffering, he must take responsibility over it. And God takes responsibility in order to oversee and maneuver the process of suffering and evil and steer it towards redemption and steer it towards glory. In order for the threshing floor of our lives to overflow, in order for the vats in the, uh, to be filled with wine and oil again, sometimes God himself has to come down and occupy empty places inside of us. To say it another way, God enters our greatest pain in order to feel it with us. But not only that, God enters into the situations that give us pain. God enters into the situations that del is delivering pain to us right now. And it's almost as if he's causing it. My great army which I sent among you. It's almost as if he's causing it to the point where sometimes we say, God, why, why would you do this to me? And I think that sometimes the reason why he does this is so that we can see him in the pain. We can see him in the pain. The picture that I get in my head right now is a nurse uh, uh, injecting a needle inside of my son, and I'm standing back, and my son looking at me and not the nurse, and conflicted. Why, Dad, you're standing right there. Why are you allowing it? But you see, it's us seeing God in the midst of the pain because God enters it. Because if you only see evil in the pain, if you only see evil in the pain, it's impossible to have faith. But if you see God steering the evil in the midst of pain, then faith is possible. And there's no place in history that makes this more crystal clear than Jesus on the cross. It's very, very difficult to explain why God allows suffering and evil to happen. But when Jesus, the Son of God, dies on the cross, God includes himself in on suffering. For whatever reason God allows these things to happen, it's not because he doesn't understand suffering. It's not because he doesn't suffer himself. Uh, there's a Canadian philosopher, his name is Charles Taylor. He makes a point that suffering is a rather modern excuse for not believing in God. Uh, up until recently, people didn't stop believing in God just because suffering happened. That that reason, that excuse to not believe in God because of suffering is something that just happened recently as a phenomenon. Ancient people didn't assume that their mind had enough 
uh, uh, rationality to, 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 to put an infinite God on trial, he says. It's only in the modern times that we get this uh, certainty in our heads uh, that uh, we have everything we need to put God on trial, that then we, we say, yeah, I think we have enough to say now God doesn't exist. Uh, but that's, that's a new thing. That's not something that ancient people dealt with historically. Suffering can be so great that it transcends our human capacity to really understand the logic of it all. And that's why some rationally-minded people, very good people, maybe some, maybe some of you even here this morning, that's why some cite suffering as the reason why they can't believe in the idea of a good God. And yet for other people, suffering is the mechanism that drives them further into faith rather than further away from faith. It's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a paradox, actually. To some, suffering breaks through our limited human rationality. It expands our rationality to see a good God who is transforming profound pain into profound glory. In the death of Jesus, God simply doesn't just make the problem of evil and suffering go away. He doesn't, he doesn't make, God does, when Jesus dies on the cross, he doesn't make problem, the problem of evil easier to understand. As a matter of fact, when Jesus dies on the cross, he actually, God complexifies the problem of evil and suffering. He likes to make it more difficult. Because instead of now having to solve the problem of evil and suffering, what God does by complexifying it is he involves himself in the story of evil and suffering. It just makes it even more difficult to understand the logic of it all. God, why not just, why not just heal evil and suffering? Why, why would you have to enter it, into it as well? Um, when Jesus goes to the cross, it's not God condemning his son Jesus to die on the cross. When Jesus goes to the cross, it's God allowing himself to be condemned on the cross. So that in 1 Corinthians 5.21, which I know is a message that this church preaches so well, so that this can be said, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. God did this. He who had no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's this exchange that happens. God enters into the world, experiences suffering, is condemned himself so that you and I can wait glory waiting for us. I think about this and I say, how, how, else, could Jesus have, how else could Jesus have gone to the cross <clears throat> Not this one, this one's much too small. But how, how, how else could Jesus have gone to the cross unless he knew his heavenly father was behind it all? Yeah. I couldn't trust the situation and my father wasn't behind it all. Yeah. You and I can't make sense of evil and suffering unless you know the heavenly father is behind it. You can't trust the situation. I would not enter into a room that's dangerous unless I knew my father had my back. Yeah. That was what allowed Jesus to go to the cross. God doesn't solve it easily but he enters into the story with it. Did God send his son to die on the cross? Yes, he did. Does it lessen the pain? No, it doesn't. Sometimes it increases the hurt, knowing that the one that you love is the one that's being uh, tortured and suffered. But knowing that God is overseeing the suffering increases your faith. It increases it to know that your father, he's overseeing the process. Because a child can trust the father in the midst of the pain. Pain is a distraction from your purpose. A father's love is a distraction from the pain. So Jesus cries out before his father. He says, Father, into your hands 
to your hands I commit my spirit. You see? Pain's there. What distracts him from the purpose? Pain. What's distracting him from the pain? Father's love. That's the faith. That's the relationship. That's the perspective that Jesus came to give us. That's the perspective that allowed my father to say to you, yes, son, go ahead. It's okay, it's okay to go back to, to North Vietnam. You can do that. Serve them. Love them. And that, that's okay. <clears throat> As I said, a short while after coming to the U.S., my father, uh, they were sponsored by a Lutheran church uh, at the age of 40. At the age of 40, after living 40 years, completely oblivious to the name of Jesus, he becomes a Christian, the first ever in the history of my family, the first ever in the history of our lineage. It boggles my mind to think that my, just, just uh, less than 37 years ago, we had never had the name of Jesus enter into our lineage as a family. And to my dad, though, America, America is not the restoration of the years that the locusts have eaten. And I love America. He loves America. He votes every four years. And, but America is not the restoration of the years that the locusts have eaten. Jesus is. Jesus is to him the field full of grain. Jesus is the wine and the oil. There's pain that Jesus endured that set us up to accomplish more of God's purposes. Let his pain inspire you. Second point, the church is the years the locusts have eaten. The church is the years the locusts have eaten. The second portion of the passage says that you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and I'm the Lord your God and there is none else. And he says it again, and my people shall never again be put to shame. As a nation <clears throat> losing its global reputation, not America, Israel, okay, uh, this encouragement from God is supposed to sound something like this. It's like God saying, I'll never be ashamed of you, Israel. I know you're dirty, but I'm still proud to be your dad. Okay, that's what it's supposed to sound like. Uh, in today's political climate, uh, you can imagine how meaningful it is to say something like this. Because we, we live in a time where it's very fashionable to deconstruct politics and our politicians. That's just, it's cool to be on the left deconstructing the left. It's cool to be on the right deconstructing the right. Because they've always been deconstructing each other. That wasn't cool enough. Now you have to be a left deconstructing the left and the right deconstructing the right. This is the age that we live in right now. If we're not careful, this is what we're ushering into the church as well. All right? We've come, in, we've come into a time where it's, it's fashionable, almost kind of cool to deconstruct the American church. I do it too. <laughs> um, but I hope when we do it, it's not without a reverent understanding of what God is actually doing in the midst right now of the American church. Uh, the American church is being redefined in our day for important reasons that are not yet obvious to us. It's not obvious yet. I want to speak positively about the American church because it's so much more complex than just the white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism. It's so much more complex than that. So many people have found their corporate identity in the church. The American church, by the way, is a miracle of God. It's, it's, an Amer it's a miracle that indigenous First Nations people follow Christ. It's amazing to me. 
After colonialists and even Puritans, the atrocities that they commit against the First Nations indigenous people, it's a miracle. African Americans, it's a miracle to me that they follow the Jesus of the Bible that their slave masters were reading to them, that they could differentiate between the difference between slave master and the guy slave masters are reading about. That's a miracle to me. It's a miracle to me that today, along with the general population, the Asian American and Hispanic churches are keeping the evangelical church from a steep decline. It's the only population in evangelicalism that's growing. The Southern Baptists and the Assemblies of God, they plant the most churches per year. This is what I do for a living, by the way, is I'm supposed to know this stuff, okay? This is what I do for work, okay? They plant the most churches per year. Both denominations report that they have half or more than half of their churches that they start per year are non-white ethnic churches. I can't be ashamed of the evangelical church. I can't be ashamed of the American church because within it is a complex sociological story of how God is creating a new people out of disparate, separated, imperfect groups of people. I can't be ashamed of that. This emerging church is the years that the locusts have eaten, at least in America, I believe. Last week I was talking to a missiologist in San Francisco. Um, a missiologist is somebody who, who studies missions. Uh, they kind of are like a sociologist, anthropologist, but they do all that stuff so that we can further missions. And so uh, she's in San Francisco, and we were talking about the different models of understanding the global context that North America is now in. Like we know it in our heads, but we don't yet know it in the heart that North America has become globalized, right? And so I think we know it here, but we, have, we don't feel it on a regular day-to-day -day basis. And I pointed out to her that most of my ministry career, my seminary professors, my mentors, they've been telling me a story or what I call a missional narrative about this new lostness in North America, this, this lostness of North America. Um, what's a missional narrative? Let me, let me give you, uh, this is a, a, a word that I'm working on, a missional narrative. It's, it's the lens or the worldview through which we tell ourselves to get excited about God's mission. All right. Uh, it's a made-up phrase. I just made it up, okay? Uh, it's self-talk. It's mobilization rhetoric. Uh, it's what we use when we tell the suburbs to go help the churches in the inner city, okay? Uh, it's, it's mobile, and it's, it's, it's important we use this kind of language. Uh, we, we need to mobilize the church. We use missional narratives to tell the story of how to mobilize the church. And as long as I can remember, the missional narrative in North America has been similar to this one right here. It says this. Uh, this, is, this is me writing what I think is the predominant missional narrative, what, what motivates people to do missions in North America, what gets us amped up. And this is typically what we tell church planners and typically what we tell other people why we need to do the religious work that we do in North America. And we usually say to them something to this effect. We say that people in North America are becoming less and less Christian, and we need to reverse this trend. It boils down to some version of that, all right? Not all the people say it the same way. Some people say it with more sophistication. They say, we are, we're post-Christian, or we're entering into post-Christendom, or we de we're decolonizing our theology, all right? So, uh, but underneath this narrative is the idea that uh, people of North America used to have a more Christian heritage and that it's changing. So we need to do what it takes to win it back. 
And a lot of this language is infused into our public uh, engagement and public square and, and engagement into the community. And all of this is right and all of this makes sense for a certain segment in America. I'm having this conversation with this missiologist and I have to admit something to her. I say, Linda, uh, do you know, as an American, um, as many times as I hear this decline narrative, as many times as I uh, have heard it and I've said it myself, as many times as people have said it to me, it doesn't really register with me. You understand that, right? I mean, I've studied it, I, I understand it, I learned to operate inside of it, I fully empathize with that narrative, but it's not my story. Up until my father became a Christian in 1980, there's never been a family, uh, a Christian family in my lineage. There's nothing to decline from. Do you understand that? (laughs) It's only incline from this point, baby. (laughs) There's nothing to decline from. I don't have a postmodern, post-Christian version of Christianity to miss. My people only became modern about 20, 30 years ago. If this is the predominant missional narrative in North America, uh, the decline narrative of Western Christendom, and if we primarily only mobilize our church in this way with this narrative, then it will always compete with the experience of most non-European immigrants. If the decline narrative, which is predominantly European, uh, clashes with the immigrants' narrative, which is predominantly non-European, then the American church is no better than the politics we see on TV. Um, Here's what I'm thinking has happened over the next 30 years in cities like Chicago. You know, Western missionaries used to send missionaries to other countries to plant churches and preach the gospel. Um, Africa, Asia, South America. For the last about 200 years, that was the trend from the west to the east. I, I think God did that because God knew that one day, Western countries like this one needed missionaries to come here to preach the gospel and plant churches. That the countries that used to send out missionaries would one day themselves need to be evangelized. It's interesting. This is a, this is a phenomena in the church. It's a phenomena in missions. There's a guy named Leslie Newbegin who's a missiologist who studies missions that he kind of popularized this idea. And back in the 1980s, he gave a series of lectures at Princeton. Uh, this is when you can give these kinds of lectures at Princeton. I don't think you can do that anymore. Uh, and uh, he asked this question, can the West be converted? And so that actually began to create all these conversations around how do we help the West become Christian again? Remember the predominant missional narrative that I was talking about? How do we help the West become Christian again? And so here's the underlying assumption. Here's the underlying assumption that most people brought to that question. They always assumed that the West was going to convert the West. That the West was going to convert the West. That we would do it ourselves. That, you know, we just have to... We just have to teach our people to have missionary eyes and look at their neighborhoods and they would convert their own neighborhood. But I'm starting to wonder if God wants to use the world to convert the West. What if the nations aren't here in America just so Americans can reach the nations? What if through immigration, put politics and border security aside, what if through immigration the nations are here in North America so that God can use the world to reach North America? I literally know, your pastor included, Asian, Hispanic, 
Indian pastors who sit in a room with a whiteboard and say, how do we reach white Americans? The same way white Americans used to sit in a room 30, 40, 50 years ago with the whiteboard and say, how do we reach Asians, Hispanics, and Indians? This emerging church is the years that the locusts have eaten. This is the restoration. That's why I can't speak badly about the evangelical church as much as I want to. <laughs> God's doing something profound that I, I don't think we fully understand what's going on yet. And I'm not ready to begin condemning that just because it gets a few likes on Twitter or Facebook. I'm real careful about that stuff. Number three and the last and final point. Man, we're getting off early today. You are the years that the locusts have eaten. This last passage says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. We talked about prophesying the last time I was here, so I don't know if you can go back to that and, and, and unpack what I meant by that, but your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I would pour out my spirit. The sure sign that God is restoring the years that the locusts have eaten is that the Holy Spirit will come down and remove any restriction on any one of us so that all of us can fulfill the purposes of God. According to Acts 2, God poured out his spirit, and in doing so, he broke three distinct barriers that you see here in the text. Three barriers that humanity has put onto, restricted God's purposes by. And so the spirit comes down and it breaks those barriers. The first barrier is this. It breaks the gender barrier. Secondly is it breaks the age barrier. And thirdly is it, it breaks the class barrier. You see that in the text, right? You see that? Joe says that both sons and daughters will prophesy. Um, I don't want to get into the argument, can women be pastors, who can lead the church, all right? Because prophesying is bigger than church politics, okay? Uh, if, you, if you have the gift of prophesying, uh, that, that may be better than sitting in a board meeting making decisions about, you know, the color of the carpet. All right, I'm just saying. Uh, but when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, God affirms the goodness of his design for Adam and Eve. Both are spokespersons for God in the world. You see, the Holy Spirit is, is, is more progressive uh, than you could ever think. Yet, Holy Spirit is more balanced th than our emotions are. Uh, more than that, just like God transforms our suffering into glory, the Holy Spirit transforms our past restrictions and our rejections. It transforms those restrictions, those rejections. It transforms the things when people said to you, I don't think you should do that. I don't think you could do that. It transforms the things when we say to ourselves, I don't think I'm gifted enough to do this. It turns those things and transforms them into overflow. The Holy Spirit transforms your past rejections into places of ministry, into fields of plenty, into overflowing vats. Where you were empty, the Holy Spirit comes in, overflows. That's your ministry. 
Today, for some of you, there's pain and restriction in your life because you were a me too victim. Your gender became a disadvantage. For others of you, there's pain and restriction in your life because you were too old now and the locusts ate up your youthful years. For some of you, you were like me. You had an immigrant family, underprivileged inner city. You lacked language, mentorship, access. These were your pains and restrictions. These are the years that the locusts have eaten. But these are the places that God is building a prophetic ministry in your life. What you thought was a restriction, what you thought was a setback, is the place that God, through the Holy Spirit, will create overflow as ministry onto other people. Through the Holy Spirit, even now, even this morning, God is saying, what you thought was a restriction will become an opportunity. What you thought was pain will be for glory. What you thought was the years that the locusts have eaten was a training camp. It was a proving ground. It was an equipping period. It was a pruning season. It was a purification process. It was a place of humbling so that you wouldn't get confused to think that you were in charge. You see, God sent the great army. God's in charge. And today with the Holy Spirit, you can say with confidence, I am the, I, I, I am the years that the locusts have eaten. Me? I'm the restoration. I was a part of that which means that the pain you endure today will help tomorrow other people released into their destinies. Let your pain inspire you. Don't let it distract you. Your overflow, I want you to understand this. This is the most important part of the message today, okay? Your overflow is meant for other people. He will give you fields full of grain. He will give you vats full of wine and oil, not so you can store up your deposits. The overflow is meant for other people. Jesus was never stuck dwelling on his personal destiny. You understand that? He wasn't navel-gazing, wondering he was living up to his potential. That was never Jesus. He was busy obeying, persevering through the trials and the pain in order to release others into their destiny. That's the life that he came to give to you. Your overflow, the blessings that God's given you, sometimes it feels empty. Sometimes it doesn't feel complete. You don't feel complete all the time when you're overflowing. Um, I, I'm afraid to say that at the risk of some of us thinking that overflow means I'm bubbly all the time, and I'm always saying, hey, sister, how can I pray for you? Well, that's, that's not necessarily overflow. Sometimes overflow can feel empty at times. Sometimes you, you, don't see the, you, don't see the, you don't see the wheat in the fields in the, in the plain uh, filled with grain. You just see sprouts. And God says you have to believe that the sprouts will turn into the grain. You, you, you can't hold on to just, you know, the scarcity mentality. It's a mentality that God's given you. Jesus never sat back and just wondered and was nervous that he wouldn't live up to his potential. He was just so stinking busy obeying God, allowing the love of the Father to distract him from the pain, the pain of his disciples because they were a pain in his neck, the pain of those who were out to get and kill him, the pain of even being separated from the Father on the cross so that he could release other people to their destinies. This morning, I pray for your overflow. I pray that God uh, would use the Holy Spirit to flow into your life so that in Christ you would see
that you are the years that the locusts have eaten, whether in your personal family, whether in this church's history, whether in American history, whether in global history, that you would see that in Christ and the Holy Spirit, you are a part of the years that God is restoring back on this earth, that were eaten by the locusts. God's sovereignly in charge. God's sovereignly in charge of your situation. I want to pray for you this morning. If you don't mind, just close your eyes and rest your minds and allow your hearts to get attuned to what Holy Spirit's doing.